Welcome to Hospitality Forward, a podcast where hospitality and travel professionals learn how to earn the media spotlight. I am Hannah Lee, president of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning public relations agency in New York City. And I'm Michael Ann Stenzik. I'm a freelance writer who covers food and beverage. I'm also editor-in-chief at Hannah Lee Communications. Our podcast is our agency's way of supporting our beloved hospitality and travel community to help it rebuild and rebound. Each week, we interview top journalists who share their insights and tips. In this episode, we chat with Kate Crater of Bloomberg Pursuits, where she's been food editor for four years. Previously, she was at Food & Wine magazine, where she was restaurant editor for more than 20 years. Hi, Kate. Hi, you guys. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Excited to be here. Us too. Us too. Kate, not many people know this, but you were actually my food writing teacher <laughs> many, many years ago when I was breaking into the field. And to be honest, I am forever indebted to your insights and encouragement and everything you've shown over the years. So having you on the show means a lot to me and Hannah. So much. Oh my gosh. Well, you know what we do? We go we go back a little ways. And, um, and I remember it was a media bistro class and I actually taught it by accident because my coworker, I think my coworker broke her foot or something. And it was a very haphazard reason that I got there. And then it turned out to be more than a dozen years ago, right? It yeah, was probably 15, probably 15 years ago. And that was when food writing was taking off in all these exciting ways, you know, and you could maybe start a blog and become famous. And it was such a cool time to cover chefs, you know, because chefs were really starting to break out. And there were all these stories to be told and all these enterprising writers who were, you know, getting ready to start writing. And I got to watch them come up. So I feel very happy, very lucky. Well, you, you had an enormous impact on a lot of people. Oh, Michael, thanks. So you've been covering food for more than two decades, right? Yeah, that's true. And we know you love good food <laughs> and love writing. Mm -hmm. So how did these two passions come together? Thanks for asking because I love this story. I um, I went to school um, at a great college in Ohio called Kenyon, but it was a very liberal arts school. And this was also like way back, I was an English major. It wasn't even like there were specialties like you could get into food writing um, like you can now. Um, so I graduated and I was driving home from Ohio to New York with my dad. And he was like, what are you going to do? Like it was that liberal arts of a school that you didn't have to have a job at Chase Bank or something. And I was like, I guess I'm gonna be a lawyer because he was a lawyer. And um, it seemed like the thing I knew I could do, or I hoped I could do. And he was like, you know, he didn't like being a lawyer. So he said, you know, you like to write and you like to eat. So maybe you should go into food writing. And this was a long time ago. This was like in the late 80s. And that was when food journalism was really like, those old school magazines like Good Housekeeping and certainly like Gourmet existed and Bon Appetit existed, but they definitely existed for like people who had horses or, you know, it was a very, very different look. And like the food was shot like in soft focus and the stories would be like a chicken goes around the world. Like that was the kind of like headline you would see. Mm. So it was like a totally different world. But I got I got lucky and I got a job. I got to go to London and um, work at Family Circle Magazine there. And oh, actually nice. the first story I got to write, if you guys watch um, The Great British Bake Off, 
was um, I got to profile Mary Berry and she did a raised sure. pork pie. And I just did not look back. I was like wow. hanging out in the test kitchen, talking to these like notable writers who, and it was like, everybody all of a sudden was speaking my language. Like they were so excited about food and I was so excited about food. And it was, it was like, I'm, I found my people, you know? Yeah. You found your tribe. I found my tribe, precisely. But yeah. you were also classically trained in the kitchen at La Varenne in Paris. So did you want to become a chef or what was the trajectory? You know what? Um, that's an excellent question. And yay you for doing your homework. Um, <laughs> so I went to London and um, I came back and then um, I wanted to get a job. But I met with somebody at the New York Times, actually. And they were like, you know, if you want to if you want to write about food, you should know what you're writing about. Like you should know if you want to sit in a restaurant, because really what I wanted to be then was like the restaurant critic. And they were like, if you want to do that, then you should know what's going on. Like if your chicken comes to the table overcooked, you want to know if it's because this chef screwed up or because the waiter wasn't doing, you know, the waiter wasn't doing his job. Like if you want to have an informed opinion. And so at about that time, I got offered um, an internship at La Varenne in Paris. And I actually didn't want to do it. I had a really serious boyfriend and I really wanted to get a job that paid money. <laughs> I've been like, <laughs> I've been like living on no money for a while, but everyone was like, go to La Varenne. So I went to La Varenne and um, it was the best thing I ever did. It really like talk about like finding your tribe. That was like where, I mean, I think everyone's had that moment and I know you guys have, but when you like taste a raspberry, like they had, they had a garden. I was most of the time in Burgundy. They had, um, they had a chateau in Burgundy that makes it where they taught classes. I know it sounds really nice and it was, but they um, had a garden. I remember eating a raspberry and then going to some of those markets. And it was as if I'd never tasted a raspberry before, like some of that fruit and some of those chickens and like everything that you ate just seemed like the best possible version of it. And wow. It was just awesome. Getting hungry already. I know. <laughs> so before Bloomberg, you were the restaurant editor at Food and Wine magazine. Would you say that your culinary training enriched your food writing and enriched your, you know, your reviews of restaurants? Yeah, I had a great, I have to say, like I was at Food and Wine for a long time. I was there for a total actually of almost 20 years because I came back from La Varenne. So I started off actually as a food editor and a recipe editor and I was so perfectly happy because like basically what that meant then was, um, you know, you would like find recipe stories and that was at a time, I mean, this was in the nineties. So I got to be in charge of the best new chef program, um, which had just sort of started. And that was great. That was just fantastic to be involved with, but I also got to, you know, find chefs who are doing something cool. And what we did then, which was really interesting is, you know, it had been like a salmon goes around the world or a fish goes around the world. And then with Dana Cowan, who was who became the editor in chief, who was so forward thinking, she was like, you know what, instead of doing that same old story, let's go talk to fishmongers and ask them the difference between like wild salmon versus farm salmon. Like she really mm -hmm. brought into the magazines like sidebars and like extra added information. And, um, and that was fantastic because it made you want to not just like look at something, but you wanted to like look around the corner and see what else you could talk about. I mean, this is going way back. And now like, I feel like food, I feel like food magazines are like architectural artifacts at this point, you know, like you can barely find one and they're like, as thin as, um, you know, they look like a tearaway thing. But um, but at this time, this was really 
a time. And if you've, if you've ever read Ruth Reichel's book, um, what was it? Save me the plums. Like you sort of know a cover shoot would take like a week to plan. Like it was this time it was so indulgent when you could really like spend time figuring out what was going to be the ultimate cover food and what you would in like writing thousands of words about it. And it was, it really was awesome. Yeah. I'm in love, Dana. I'm in Food and Wine magazine. I'm still a huge fan and we yeah. subscribe. Mm -hmm. and no question. Now let's talk about your current home, new home. Mm -hmm. So for our listeners, can you tell us what you normally cover at Bloomberg? Yeah, it's um, so now I'm at Bloomberg and specifically I'm my section is Bloomberg Pursuits, which is sort of the leisure arm of Bloomberg. So I cover food and restaurants for Bloomberg. And I've actually been there for four years now, which seems hmm. crazy. Wow. Time, <laughs> Time flies. flies. Four years already. Goes quickly. Four years. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But yeah, so I had spent the majority of my time looking for, you know, oh, cool. I remember like one story I got to do was a salmon that was coming from New Zealand that was farmed in a really environmentally safe way that was starting to make its rounds into the U.S. So I would kind of get to do that as well as see what some of the trends were. I, got, I actually, one story that I loved the most, I think, was um, how salt was disappearing from restaurant tables. Yes. And that was for a number of things. But part of that was because um, there were so many different ethnic foods that had become so popular, you didn't need a salt shaker, like salt was not part of the equation anymore. And also those old school salt shakers that you would see in a diner were crappy. You know, they only had like, they had like that, the disgusting iodized salt. And otherwise, if you, I mean, especially if you think about it now, but if you had like a little bowl or a little cellar for flaky salt, that's the most unhygienic thing you can think of. Like there was no, nobody had invented the great new salt shaker basically. True. Yeah. But um, I got to write those kind of stories. But now with the pandemic on, I've changed my focus to covering the recovery of the restaurant world, mm -hmm. mostly. So we're always looking for stories. We just got to do a great one with someone who you guys know, Sinjin Frizzell oh, from Forts of yes. Science, who wrote this beautiful story about give, having to give up his bar, Fort Defiance, in Red Hook and why why he was happy about it. And mm -hmm. it, it covered so many things from like PPP loans to groceries to the neighborhood. It's If you haven't, I, I urge anyone who's listening to read it because he did a gorgeous job but very much so wasn't it great it, it was, was great. great and you know it's a very heartbreaking as you said but happy ending yeah he's happier now than than before isn't that true and you wouldn't you wouldn't have known it but yeah no he talked about like going into red hook he really opened his bar at a time before you would have completely bet on brooklyn let alone a neighborhood like red hook always seems to be one step ahead he did he's he is always ahead you're exactly right michael he's, he was part of the hipster vanguard mm -hmm. Although he True. would probably hate that term. <laughs> so how would you say a food story for Bloomberg is different than one you, you would write for an iconic food publication? Well, everything's changed so much. Um, but at Bloomberg, there's definitely an interest in like data and numbers. So one other thing I've done at Bloomberg since the start of the pandemic is start um, a column called Lunch Break. And it comes out every Friday. And it's we're, we're fans of it. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Love it. It's one of oh, my favorite you. new columns. Oh, my God. Hannah. Oh, but um, it's been great because you get to highlight new cookbooks, which sometimes now you get to give them like a little extra measure of the spotlight. Because if you think about it, like promotional tours are gone. It's not mm -hmm. as easy, even as 
people are cooking at home, it's harder for new cookbooks to make noise, you yes. know, than they might have before. So I get to find a new cookbook and find a recipe, preferably one that has a hack, like something that you mm -hmm. wouldn't have thought to do. And so the first one I did is, is actually the best example. It was from the Phoenicia Diner, which is mm -hmm. a really popular diner out in the Catskills. And they had a recipe for a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. But what they did, what they point out, which I hadn't known, and now I tell everybody, is the reason, like if you've had a BEC from a bodega or a cart on the street, especially in New York, it's better than when you make it home or that you get in a restaurant. And the reason is because they wrap it in foil before they give it to you. Yeah. And that gives the sandwich a minute to steam like in the bun. So the egg and the cheese and the bacon come together in this really cohesive way. And so that was something they wrote in that cookbook. And I was like, bang, that's awesome. And so that's the kind of recipe we look for. So as a long prelude to your question, Michael, um, the difference in um, stories for Bloomberg is for one thing, they love like reading about people in the industry. So if you work at Goldman Sachs and you open a restaurant, I can pretty definitely write about you. <laughs> um, I mean, there's definitely an interest in, you know, like the financial markets and what's happening there vis-a-vis -vis food and what people in the finance world are investing in. So things like Impossible Burgers yes. are always going to be popular at Bloomberg. But they're also like people are smart and they're really into food and they're really into restaurants. So they do want to know like what's happening, like what's if there's a trend, if like the power lunch is over and the power mm. breakfast is in, if like Red Hook is becoming really popular, then it might be that you'll like, call the mayor's office or get hooked up to somebody who's working in real estate and they can tell you, oh, they just changed the zoning laws there. So right. like there's, there's generally like one extra step or one extra hoop you go through mm -hmm. at Bloomberg. I think that's gen that's sort of usually business related. Yeah. So, but like, you know, but it can also be, I think just, it's thinking sometimes a little bit left field, like a, another great story I got to do recently at it. I have a writer who I like a lot, Larissa Zimbaroff. She's great. And she um, she found there was this awesome chocolate company in San Francisco called Dandelion. And she found out oh my that God. a Tesla. We love, yeah, we know we it well. I love the chocolate. Isn't it fantastic? It's mm -hmm. so good. It goes really well with cocktails. Oh, my gosh. That's good to know. I mean, I just had one of those chocolate chips today. And I was like, this is really almost savory. So tell me what cocktail I need to have it with. Um. Something stirred and boozy like Manhattan mm. would be my recommendation. Okay. But let's face it, Manhattan goes well with anything. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> all purpose. It's like the champagne of cocktails, right? Exactly. exactly. Absolutely. So going back to uh, the cookbooks for a minute, you mentioned uh, the Impossible Cookbook, yeah. which we love. I've tried a bunch of the recipes. Mm -hmm. and I love that. You really can't tell it's plant-based meat. But, I mean, obviously there are thousands and thousands of cookbooks out there with new ones being published almost every day, it seems. How do you choose them? You know, you, you could only choose a handful, relatively speaking. Right. Some of it's based on what the content is and what will appeal for lunch break, because 
because one of the one of the restrictions of lunch break is you really are trying to help people figure out what to have for lunch as they're working from home. Mm. So I did a cool recipe a week or two ago that was for fried chicken popcorn. And basically it was like making popcorn instead of using oil, you cook it in butter, an obscene amount of butter, and then you flavor it with um, MSG, which I'm a fan of, and like chicken bouillon powder and like granulated garlic. And it was fascinating. It was a fun recipe to do, but it didn't do very well. People didn't really read it because in spite of the fact that it's fascinating, it doesn't really solve your like, what am I going to eat now? So so every once in a while, you have to do those recipes that you think are cool, even if you know the story won't do so well. But um, ideal, I mean, you want to find a great cookbook. Like this Kelly Fields cookbook is like one of the best cookbooks of the year. Mm -hmm. So I feel really happy I got to do that. Um, But then George W. Bush's former chef, came out with a sort of memoir and I was lucky I looked through it because it turned out to be this really beautiful cookbook. It wasn't filled with like ridiculous hors d'oeuvres, you know, with a hundred ingredients that they made for Putin. When Putin came to town, it was what he really cooked for the Bush family at the ranch. And there were like stories about Angela Merkel, like walking around um, Crawford where their ranch is And so that turned out to be like, that's the best of it when, I mean, you have to spend some time and especially now when you get very few um, real like hardcover cookbooks, like most of them are PDFs. Mm -hmm. So it takes like a long time to go through them and figure out what's there. But I'm trying to solve a couple things, which is like what people can eat that that seems a little bit different, but is also really accessible because in general, I would say Bloomberg audience isn't like the most, isn't are the people who are like, give me a three day project recipe. Like that's not where they live. So um, if there's a way to find a cookbook that's raising money for something, I love, I love highlighting that. Um, And then you also just look for a variety of things, you know, like different cuisines, different people, and like certainly big cookbooks, but also some smaller ones too. It's nice to find them and feel like you're giving something to someone and helping that person get visibility for their book. That's nice. I mean, you know, Michael and I are huge bookworms, and uh-huh. we have hundreds of books at the office and home. We're, we're running out of space. I know that feeling. Yeah, we keep ordering the books from your uh, lunch oh, cool. break column, and oh, thank you. Yeah, so we are waiting three you're, books. You're the, you're the next Oprah book club. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So speaking of. Um, chefs and dining. So let's talk about the outdoor dining. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's happening uh, in our industry right now. So we, we, we enjoy seeing you um, out and about. On Instagram. On Instagram, <laughs> enjoying outdoor mm-hmm. dining and drinking in the city. So any particular restaurants that uh, stand out? I'm so happy you asked me that question because we actually have a big story on Bloomberg about outdoor dining and going beyond because, you know, in Bloomberg, we spend a lot of time in Manhattan and Midtown, at least pre-pandemic and Soho and the village. And this is going around um, for the five boroughs, sorry, Staten Island, but we're going like from the, from Brooklyn to the Bronx and calling out cool new um, outdoor dining situations in places like Jackson Heights, in places like Brooklyn. Bruckner Boulevard, um, a couple of them. If you, I would urge everyone to go to Governor's Island if they haven't mm-hmm. been there um, mm-hmm. because that season ends at some point and they've 
really done a great job of, um, it's called Island Oyster. And Ooh. it's just like a short boat ride away. And you'll feel like you're somewhere else. It's completely safe because it's really socially distanced. It's awesome. Amazing. Um, I would, um, there's also a place in Brooklyn called Kokomo that's um, Caribbean. It's in Williamsburg. That's mm. also just superb, like great, great, great. Um, and then places that you might know of, I would, um, I'm a big fan of Coke Korean Steakhouse. Oh my God, yes. That's a favorite. <laughs> Isn't we it so good? It. We love it. We love it. They've done such a good job. They've created like a frosé. I mean, they have like a monumental mixologist, but he was like, you know what? I'll do frosé. If I need to make frosé for people, I'll make frosé. So, um, yeah, Sandra is so great. He's I mean, so good. I mean, so good, so creative. It's drinks you want to drink. Yeah, he's drink, so wonderful. Yeah, all the drinks are drinks you want to drink. The quality of the meat is so good. But they've they've done a really good job. Like they've started making fried chicken because they were like, that's what people want to eat. So, um, so that was good. A restaurant that you might know called Carbone. They created this great restaurant. It's sort of is almost as if you're eating indoors but outdoors, and mm -hmm. servers are great. Um, I'm a big Wild Air fan, so Wild mm -hmm. Air has taken over a little bit of is it Ludlow Street or Orchard Street, and um, they've set up and they've um, they're doing some like fun food. Those are the ones that stand out to me right now. I'm again getting hungry. I know exactly. Getting hungry. <laughs> so, so going back to your coverage for a moment, uh, you did a great story on David Rockwell and his vision of the restaurant of the future, mm -hmm. and it was pretty out there, like almost you know sci-fi stuff, like modular food growing beds and movable mm -hmm. hydroponic green walls and apiaries on the rooftop. You know, a lot of food for thought. Utterly fascinating. What's your take on it? What's your, what do you think? You know, the prospects are for this coming to life. I mean, I think I, for sure, if David Rockwell is doing it, someone's, I mean, I, you know, David Rockwell is one of the best and most successful um, architects and restaurant designers, not just in this country, but in the world. So if he's, if that's the plan he's drawing up, we're going to see it. You know, there's no, it's, that's unquestionable. Um, I think the question is when, and then the hard question also was like, how many restaurants are there going to be left to do it? Like, I'm not, I, I believe in New York City and I believe we're going to get through this, but we're going to, we're going, we're going to go through a really tough time. I mean, there's bad news every day. Um, and his point in doing that, thank you for pointing out all the things he did, but one thing he said, and I think it's becoming more apparent to people is that kind of dinner only restaurant or like occasion restaurant is not going to be sustainable. I mean, especially, especially going forward, because it's going to take a long time for people to want to go out to eat, especially indoors mm -hmm. and outdoor dining with space restrictions and stuff is, um, is not a recipe for financial stability. And so what Rockwell's argument is that you need a way to make money during the day and also be environmentally conscious and grow your own greens and, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. cut out carbon footprint, stuff like that. But I think his bigger argument is that you need a reason to bring people in during the day and not waste time, not have like hours and hours of dead air, so to speak, in your right. restaurant. Makes a lot of sense. Moving on to uh, a more practical topic. So for our listeners, what are the three most important things to keep in mind when they pitch you? I love that question because it's really important. I think like to pitch me and to pitch people in general is like know who you're pitching, like spend at least an hour reading up on the place where the person works and what that person has written, because, you know, we all have, I'll, well, I'll speak for myself. I've big ego. So like the fact that you just read, mentioned my Rockwell piece and like, you clearly read it 
you just scored some points with me. So thank you. <laughs> but you know, like you get good job, baby. <laughs> I love but you know, it's ridiculous though if people like if someone starts pitching me on convention space, you know, or something like that, or or they'll pitch a story that I wrote like two weeks ago. So that definitely makes me very wary of working with them if they can't be bothered to do a little bit of homework to know it's it's obvious but it, it just can't be said enough you know besides like making sure you have the person's name right yeah um the other thing is find a story that someone else hasn't told before and if they have told it let me know why you're the person to tell it in a fresh way um and i think also just know like no bloomberg bloomberg's great because it's, you know, we cover food. People love food. There's a decreasing number of food outlets there now. And we also stand in sort of a unique position because we care about like a certain, there's a certain segment of business and food that we especially care about or innovation in food that you can't always do in other places. So yeah, show some tangible results. Yeah, tangible results. Well said, Michael. That's, we love numbers. Speaking of numbers, what makes you open an email pitch? Is a subject line make it a break it? Um, a subject line definitely helps. Yeah. I, I think having like a compelling subject line is really important right now. Really important. But I think like a compelling one that's not too sensational, you know, if it's like unbelievable or it's like all caps or exclamation points. That's not a good move. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I mean, you can reference, I'm a sucker. It's it's very low-hanging fruit, but I am a sucker. If someone's like, saw the story on Tesla chocolate, thought you'd be interested in this, like, I'll be like, oh, mm -hmm. they at least did step one. You know, like, mm -hmm. I think um, they know who they're talking to right now. Mm -hmm. I think also with this time of inclusivity, if you can make the point that you are promoting somebody or something that's minority owned, like where yeah. Bloomberg's really interested in that right now. Mm -hmm. I always want to know about sustainability stuff too. So, but again, like that, that is really good for me, but that's probably not good for every single person. So that's great. No, great tips. But Excellent. no exclamation No exclamation, no exclamation for you. <laughs> <laughs> so now is the listener question part of the show. Ah. And uh, Chef Induvo Akim Abu Salam of Induvo Kitchen wrote in. Uh, he saw your article back in March on the end of the golden age of restaurants. Mm -hmm. uh, so now that we're obviously many months into this, uh, Chef Salam wants to know if you think things will bounce back eventually or has the golden age truly ended? That is an excellent, excellent question. Thank you, Chef. Um, I think the golden age is evolving. I think the golden age, I think it's going to be redefined, at least in the short term. But I think, and I, I want to take credit for this, but Danny Meyer actually said it. He was saying that until he can open indoor dining, the way he's going to treat hospitality is as regards outdoor dining. So it could be the friendliness or the greeting you get if you pull up to the curb and somebody opens your car door or opens your trunk and puts the food in or the way they take your order or the way they smile, you know, the way they smile at you behind their mask. Like the way that we define hospitality is totally different than it was a couple months ago. And so you take that and you go with it. And so I think that there's like great innovations coming. And I think that there's going to be a new age of golden restaurants or the bronze age of 
maybe that's backward looking, right? What's forward? The titanium age of restaurants could be coming. Um, the appreciation for restaurants and people who love them and want to eat in them and get great joy and pleasure is totally, totally coming back. And, and for right now, it's in an odd space, but it's fantastic how people have figured out how to like deliver pleasure and great experiences. And I have no doubt, like no, no doubt there's too many like terrifically talented people, too much passion, like yeah, no. Well, I, I think also people's palates have evolved and, you know, they're not going to go back to, you know, mediocre food. Well, I think there's an appreciation for really good food and how and how like home cooking has changed it. There's definitely been a move towards comfort food, you know, but at the same time, like more ambitious mm -hmm. home yeah. cooking. And so like what people are going to want as they go to restaurants, there's definitely been a demand for foods that you can't always make at home, like Chinese food. Not a lot of people can make really good Sichuan food at home. So there's been a big demand for that, whether it's takeout or going to eat in restaurants. And I think like Mexican food is also really popular right now, as always. But yeah, no, I think it, I think it will be cool to see what kind of foods and restaurants people are interested in. One last question. How can our listeners find you? Well, I'm on social media. I am K at K Crater, K-K-R-A-D-E-R. -E and at Bloomberg, my email is kcrater at Bloomberg.net. Well, Kate, I wish we could speak to you more and more for another hours, which Me too. I know we enjoy, you know, speaking with you every minute of it. So thank you. This has been so wonderful and great to chat with you and we love you kate um i love you guys right back thank you so much for letting me um talk to you and having me on your awesome podcast and um i am psyched to see you in person sometime soon thank you so much thanks so much kate thanks you guys it's thank so good you. to see you same here bye bye, bye. what a delicious conversation now that you know what kate is looking for if you have a worthy story idea to share, reach out and mention that you heard her on our podcast. And of course, just remember Kate's advice and do's and don'ts. If you learned a tip or two, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, and tell your friends and colleagues. In our next episode, we chat with Ray Isle, Executive Wine Editor at Food & Wine Magazine. Tune in to listen to this passionate wine educator and learn how to tell your story in the most compelling way. See you next week. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.